0: Hello and welcome to the OrthoPod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Professor Jane Gunn is a general practitioner, PhD graduate and Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Professor Gunn's distinguished career as an academic has seen her work as Head of the Department of General Practice, Deputy Head of Melbourne Medical School and the Inaugural Chair of Primary Care Research at the University of Melbourne. Professor Gunn's leadership in traversing the research-practice gap has raised the profile and rigour of primary care research in Australia and in 2016 saw her election to the position of Fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. Welcome Professor Gunn.
1: Thank you, great to be here.
0: Firstly, congratulations on your appointment to the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences. As a medical student myself at Melbourne Uni, I think it's absolutely fascinating that you've been a medical student here as well and now gone on to become the Dean of the whole faculty. Could you tell me about your experience as a medical student at Melbourne Uni, including whether or not you thought you would become the Dean one day?
1: Oh, I certainly didn't start my life at the University of Melbourne thinking I would become the Dean one day. But I do remember very vividly my early days as a medical student here. Um, I went to school in the country down in Gippsland and I came down to Melbourne, you know, to study medicine, which was a fantastic opportunity. And so it was very exciting to arrive at the university and I do recall hearing about the concept of the dean of our faculty at the time. Um, but as probably you would, would know, the dean of the faculty isn't the sort of first person on your mind when you enrol as a medical student or any other student here at the university. But it was Graham Ryan who was the dean when I was a medical student, and um, he was quite famous at the time because his son was also in our cohort. So that was sort of the, an interesting sort of turn of events that he just happened to be in, in our year. And uh, so we had a sort of special focus on, on the dean because of one of our um, class members being, being one of his children. But it was, um, I think, beginning with the idea of becoming a doctor was really what was on my mind when I started the course, rather than any other Career trajectory
0: so one of the things that they certainly talked about in m d one the first year of mm-hmm. the medical degree was this this concept of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. and I know myself i I genuinely thought there was some sort of administrative error or something for me to get into medicine and and grappled with the idea of you know am I cut out to sort of get through this degree, let alone become a doctor, and your career has seen you be. Medical student and general practitioner now, and your role as the dean. Have you ever felt like that at all in your career?
1: I think you know, in our careers, we um, we don't necessarily. Well, personally, from my own point of view, you don't necessarily know what's going to be you know there in five years' time. Even though you often say, you know, what are your plans for five years' time? I think I came to my career thinking about really what lay ahead in the next pathway. So it was thinking about. Getting to the end of the medical course, well, actually, was thinking about getting to the end of third year because the first three years, being the preclinical years, were really full-on basic science lectures from eight o'clock in the morning until you know five o'clock in the afternoon. Quite a full curriculum when when I studied, and so I had sort of I can't wait to get to the clinical school set in time because that was when you know I'd have more patient exposure and learn more about the clinical side of medicine. And so I sort of would break, I think, my course up into getting to the end of third year and then getting to the end of final year. And then thinking about, you know, what was the future going to hold? And I remember enjoying so many parts of the medical course, especially when I got to those clinical years, that, you know, I was, whatever I was doing, I would find something to enjoy in it. So I remember doing emergency department, enjoying that, doing ICU, enjoying that doing anesthetics, enjoying that, doing obstetrics, enjoying that, paediatrics. So I really enjoyed the whole breadth of medicine. And I think that's probably a good thing. Probably some things I probably thought I wouldn't ever choose, but I had a very, very broad view of what I might be. Imposter syndrome I mean, I think all of us, when we started, you know, we were all just eager and getting into the medical course, you wondered whether, how you would get through it at times, but there was a great sense of community. And I remember forming those friendships with really close colleagues and they still are friends today. So the imposter syndrome wasn't, wasn't sort of, I don't think I would have even heard the term imposter syndrome as a medical student at all the imposter syndrome term probably became more evident when i was well and truly into my academic career and did a women in leadership program at the university here and they actually talked about imposter syndrome how people might feel they're never kind of up to it and i think i haven't really focused on it to be honest even though i'm sure there's times when you think gee why me doing this at this point in time it hasn't been a focus
0: Well, you mentioned your time at the Union, we've discussed that a fair bit, and I'm going to squeeze in a question, sort of for my little sister's sake, because she's about to finish her Bachelor of Science Mm -hmm. at Melbourne Union, she's starting to think about master's programs and a career in the biomedical sciences. As the only female dean in the history of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences, what do you think is the most pressing issue facing women in science today and how can we overcome it?
1: Well, I think it's really allowing women and encouraging women to just be the best that they can be and supporting them to aim for whatever career they want and supporting them to get there. So, you know, for your your sister, I would say, you know, follow her passion. I think it's worth thinking about what are the things that you're good at and what are the things that you enjoy and you have a passion for. So if you can find where your natural strengths lie and where your passions lie, then trying to follow those and and bring those together into a, a possible career... Is, is what I would encourage. Now, for girls, of course, there's a concern that women aren't being encouraged enough into um, STEM, science, mathematics and all engineering or all, all of the courses that maybe have traditionally been more aligned to male careers. And I think, you know, we have to be very mindful of encouraging women who enjoy those subjects and those you know, disciplines to pursue them rather than put them off. And I think that we still have work to do in those parts of science and medicine, technology, you know, or mathematics to really encourage women to go for it.
0: Go for it. Okay. Mm. Hear that, Jess? Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Yep. Go for it. (laughs) So you're the lead investigator for the Diamond Cohort Study, which is focusing on the diagnosis, management and outcomes of depression in primary care. And you must be thrilled that Diamond was highlighted last year by the National Health and Medical Research Council as one of the 10 of the best studies in 2021. What is Diamond and why is it one of the most significant projects supporting the improvement of human health in Australia?
1: Look, the Diamond study is a longitudinal cohort study that um, was recruited patients to take part from 30 general practices around Victoria. It commenced really in in thinking back in 2003. The official cohort got underway about 2005, and we wound it up in 2015 at the 10 year follow up. And the, the reason that I established the Diamond Cohort was really to try and get a very in depth understanding of what's the natural course of experience of depressive symptoms in the Australian primary care environment. At the time that it was established, there was a lot of focus on raising awareness about mental health problems. But back in the late 90s there and early 90s in, in Europe, there was a recognition that we needed to do more to raise awareness about mental health problems. There was also a strong focus on screening people for depressive symptoms or whatever in the community and then potentially following them up. Now, where I got interested in, in this was sort of thinking about well what happens to people within the ordinary healthcare system that we have in Australia back then in the early 2000s if they have depressive symptoms and you might think well wouldn't wouldn't we know that you know wouldn't we know what happens and well We didn't. I mean, we did a systematic review of all the longitudinal studies that had been done back in the early 2000s. I think we found about 17 studies. Most of them were were less than one year long. A couple went for three years maybe, but very few went for longer than that. And some of those were not pure longitudinal studies, if you like. They'd been collected from following control groups in randomised controlled trials. So there was a gap. There was a gap in our knowledge, our basic knowledge about the things that, that people do when they have depressive symptoms what sorts of treatments are they offered, what other things that they do to look after their health during that time, what other problems do they have, how does the healthcare system look after them, and what's their experience of care, as well as how their symptoms progress over time. So I was very interested to see, you know, how much of these symptoms progress to become very severe or serious disorders, how much they might relapse or remit and cause the person any further troubles. So really a natural history of depression study. But as you might sort of think natural history of illness might require you to follow an illness without any interventions well the the reality is you know in the 2000s it's not going to be possible to gather people with depressive symptoms and follow them without any intervention that would be seen as unethical because we know there's treatments and things that are effective and so this was following what happened with the depressive symptoms in a real world setting and really with the aim of learning about symptom trajectories treatment choices experiences of care and being able to contribute to improving models of care and health outcomes in the longer term Um, so it was a real it was um, a long a a, a study that started for a short period of time and ended up taking you know good 15 years of my life
0: and one of the major outcomes was the Target D application. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, so out of the Diamond Cohort study, we collected a lot of information and there's been all sorts of research papers published from that. But one of I think, really, um, really important things that we did was to develop up a clinical prediction tool. So these clinical prediction tools are really aimed at helping, in this case, clinicians but also uh, the person with the depressive symptoms really gets sorted into a very easy sort of triage system of whether or not they're at low, medium or high risk of ongoing problems with depression. And this tool is really to signpost, trying to link people in better to the care that might meet their needs. And so I put a lot of effort into a clinical prediction tool that was pretty good at doing this job and was easy, simple to complete and also engage the person in their own journey towards accessing care, so helping to motivate them and engage them with care. So it was a two-part tool in the Target D study that we developed, the algorithm to put people, triage them into these three groups, low, medium and high risk of ongoing symptoms, but also the tool was developed in a way that engaged the person in seeking and their care at the level most appropriate for them and we did that as a randomised controlled trial and showed that we were able to allocate people effectively to these different groups and that coupled with the right care for that level of severity have better health outcomes for them so it's a complex sort of study in the real world setting but using that randomised controlled trial design
0: and for anyone who's interested we'll post the uh, links to the papers that you've published in the show notes for the episode as well. So you've worked as a GP for many years and I understand that you have a passion for transforming mental health care in the primary care setting with your research, as we've been talking about, focusing on depression and multimorbidity. And depression is the most common mental health condition co-occurring with a physical health condition like osteoarthritis. So what are some of the approaches used by general practitioners to help patients living with a mental-physical multimorbidity?
1: Yeah, look, I think this concept of mental-physical multimorbidity is one that's a very important one for us to consider. That, that all our research shows that for people that have those combined problems, when they have a chronic health condition like, let's say, osteoarthritis and a mental health issue these people are the ones that really need the best care plans that we can get for them because unfortunately they're probably at a higher chance of having a poorer outcome down the track So we can't separate people into their physical health condition and their mental health condition very well. And I think anybody who's a human being and thinks about themselves realises how difficult it is to separate pure physical health from mental health because these are very interactive. So in all the work that I've done, it really has been firstly acknowledging that interplay between a person's physical symptoms, whether that's pain, whether that's function their mental health symptoms of feeling anxious or depressed or stressed or or worried and trying to utilise approaches where you're dealing with both of those sides of a person and as a GP we'd be looking at developing up care plans that looked at the whole person and even if they presented with a mental health problem looking at their physical health and vice versa if they present with a physical health problem making sure that that care plan takes account of their mental health problem as well and i think there's very interesting you know work that will show that for some people, intervening in their physical health in terms of getting them more active or getting them doing exercise and things will have benefits for their mental health and, and vice versa. There will be people that will benefit a lot from having learning about cognitive behavioural strategies or meditation or mindfulness strategies that will help them deal with their pain and have better function. So the fact that these things are you know really intertwined is what I think is one of the greatest challenges for us as medical practitioners and healthcare practitioners, but also one of the greatest joys of working with people to help them manage their health in its entirety.
0: So when I think of care plans, I often Mm. think of things like particularly diabetes service, incentive payments, these sort of things. Is there such a thing? I mean, musculoskeletal health conditions, which we've talked about before on the podcast, cost the most to the health system. Is there such a thing or do you think there should be sort of incentive payments for GP care plans for dealing with patients that have osteoarthritis?
1: I I think that already, I mean, we've got a complex funding system for our primary care and our healthcare system in Australia. It's a real hybrid, isn't it, Mm. fee-for-service as well as some bundled payments which you're talking about we also have our recently elected federal government interest in voluntary patient registration as well and looking at how we might have registered populations and and bundle payments around a registered population the concept of how much are incentives a key part of getting better care is a very interesting research question. I have been involved in one study that's tried to look at disentangling that, which was done with Jane Hocking, actually, around chlamydia screening. And it was interesting that we had things like audit Audit and feedback, little incentive payments for doing chlamydia testing, and then it was a really neat study. You might want to look that one up too, the accept trial. Then we did a very cool thing of taking the different interventions out in a stepwise fashion. So the gradual, well, we removed incentives and studied what happened there. And there's some interesting findings in that. I think from the point, and and they are context. Dis- Dependent really in the healthcare setting that you're in, what we did discover with that study was that the audit and feedback was actually probably doing more to change the physician behaviour than the incentives alone and that incentives, when they're added in, Uh, There's probably an entire science to that as well about the size and what what you get for that. But I think it's a mix of things that you need to improve practice. With musculoskeletal problems and the fact they are very, very common, I mean, they're very common reasons for people going to see primary care as well as going into emergency departments. I personally think that the comprehensive assessment and having a very comprehensive care plan for that person that does take into account their physical and mental health and their uh, social and emotional, their environment, their, their whole person is really key if we're going to get the outcomes that we need, especially for the, the complex and chronic presentations that are, are not responding to just interventions that mm-hmm. you try early on. So I think personally we need to think about these groups in a stepwise fashion. Of looking and that's why I find those little triage tools of looking at people in those. They're very simple but trying to understand who are the people with severe and complex needs and how do we identify them very accurately and then how do we get the right resources for them and then the people who are really not at risk of you know severe and complex conditions still need management and treatment but they're usually managed quite well by single and interventions that we know about and they'll respond quite well to you know course of pain relief and physiotherapy for example but mm. there people with severe and complex needs need a much more comprehensive plan and I would say team approach if we're really going to solve the problems
0: mm. well I'm really interested in in what the general practitioner offers for the patient with osteoarthritis and in addition to being the first female dean of the MDHS you're also the first dean who is a general practitioner Now, despite the RACGP, so the Royal Australian College of General Practitioner, guidelines recommending non-surgical intervention, which I think you're sort of touching on there, Mm. as first-line therapy for knee and hip osteoarthritis, empirical evidence and qualitative observations suggest that patients' willingness to accept non-surgical interventions for osteoarthritis is actually quite low. Can you touch on what actually are the recommended non-surgical interventions that GPs offer?
1: Look, most... A general practice will be really starting from a comprehensive assessment of the person, identifying what the severity of their condition is, and trying to get a good understanding of where they are on in terms of that complexity level. That would be mo- what most GPs will be trying to work out. Usually this is done over time, so it's usually not the one-off consultation where suddenly everything is sorted out. It usually is a, l- a little bit of a journey over time where the person is you know, understood within that general practice setting. Most GPs will start with some very simple interventions around looking at whether there are things that we can modify. So one of the really key ones of course is obesity. Um, easy to identify, difficult to modify but that will be a focus for many GPs. that They will be trying to work with that person to encourage them to lose weight. Also to encourage them to move because one of the things that we know, move it or lose it type um, conversations will go on quite regularly between GPs and their patients. And trying to motivate people, educate them as to what osteoarthritis is, what the options are for their osteoarthritis and how they can get some very good benefits from losing weight, being more active and pain relief is required. Although we know that the long-term pain relief is not an answer for osteoarthritis. Uh, And so a lot of that, as you've said and implied, not every patient will accept that as the thing that they want to do. And many patients will be looking for something that's going to be a little bit more immediate. And, you know, who would blame them? They're in pain. They've got a problem and they would like a more immediate solution. And they may have unrealistic sort of views about what they can get access to. I mean, I think people do fall into, you know, the people that are more inclined to look for a procedural or surgical outcome and then there'll be those people who who never want to have a surgical intervention so there's a, a whole spectrum of people and most people are in between where they'll weigh up the benefits and pros and cons of these approaches but the the GP managing osteoarthritis is and all of the muscular the chronic musculoskeletal conditions has to be seen over time and it's got to be seen as I said before in that whole person assessment and that's really key to the way that the, the GP and the good experience in general practice would assist people to make those decisions and explore the possibilities with the GP and have appropriate referrals to the other people that can help through allied health. As I said, you know, physiotherapists are great friends for osteoarthritis as is occupational therapy, as are all the informal things like walking groups and things like that around, you know, that, that are available in people's communities and Swimming pools, etc., mm. <laughs> all of those non non-surgical interventions, you you'll give them a try. So when the time
0: comes for the appropriate referral to the orthopaedic surgeon, we've heard all about Target D and and you've got a real passion for predictive tools. Do any predictive tools exist for GPs in the case of patients with osteoarthritis?
1: Well, look, there's nothing right at this moment that I would push the button on, but there's a lot of work in the Opus CRE and, of course, there's a PhD student who's working very hard on developing up the algorithms and and things and looking and using uh, information from GP databases etc to look at what those predictors might be and there's other work of course you know across in other settings in other other settings around the world looking at what those clinical prediction tools can be and how we identify the sorts of factors that exist a lot of them as you probably know they're more at the level of specialist care where they'll be looking at radiographic evidence they'll be looking at you know maybe even markers biomarkers and things like that whereas one of the things that's interested me is how can we take just simple questions that someone can answer, let's say on an iPhone or an iPad, and self-report, and can they be almost as good as some of the more sophisticated ways of um, getting information? And certainly that's what I showed with the target detour, that we took some very simple questions for self-report and we then tested those against very comprehensive questions, very questions asking about all sorts of things like, childhood abuse, um, violence, very long, lots of long sort of winded instruments. And we showed that, you know, we could actually get a pretty similar response to the triage tool from simple self-report questions. And that's something that, you know, I would encourage in the osteoarthritis field as well, to have these sort of clinical prediction tools that are applicable in the community that we can use at the point of care in primary care. And then, you know, they'll be able to move people on to the next level of care. And then when you get to the more sophisticated algorithms, looking at the people that might be more likely to respond or have a good outcome to surgical intervention, that's when you might start to bring in a lot more information from scans and x-rays and and biometric things and, and things like that. So I think I'm really keen on seeing what clinical prediction tools can do to make our work easier and more effective in the long run. And I know that there's people in OPUS doing that as well. So
0: it's it's qualitative data that's really going to drive drive these sort of prediction tools and, and better understandings. Are there any sort of, you know, w- w- we've talked to Professor Chung before yep. about when he feels like a patient is ready for a, a joint replacement and for him it it's not, oh, there's osteophytes on the X-ray or something mm-hmm. like that. It's about when the patient comes and and really is ready and and wanting and willing for the the procedure. Is that the same in the general practice when you're referring the patient to the orthopaedic surgeon?
1: I think there's some really key things that you look at as a a GP. One is ideally you try and get people engaging in these non-surgical interventions just to see how well you can get them. And that's great when people really do. And let's say take the the scenario where a person might have done all those things and they haven't got a very good outcome from them. The, The next step is really thinking about the extent to which they're impaired. So, you know, waking at night with pain, finding it difficult to toilet, not being able to do the things that they enjoy in their life, like really having those functional limitations in their daily lives and they're the things that I think really are those flags where you're wanting to go and and get, my view, a very good assessment from someone like um, Professor Chung to get the assessment. So, you know, as a GP, I would be trying to send and refer people off, not with saying, oh, look, you know, you're going to go here and you'll get this operation will happen, you'll be fixed. But actually, you know what, the time has come. This is a really good time now you've tried these these various things you've only had a partially successful outcome or maybe it's not so good you've given them a good shot now's the time to really go and get opinion from an orthopedic surgeon about the possibility of whether or not surgery might be warranted or whether there are other interventions that they would want you or recommend that you do so always try to refer off you know not with the the operation is at the end of it definitely because that sets people up for something that isn't necessarily the outcome they're going to get or that is the right outcome, but more, you know, that assessment. And I think that is something that we probably need to explain more to people about the importance of that. That's a really important part of treatment is is a comprehensive assessment because, you know, treatment's what comes when you really understand what's going on to the best of your ability and help the person make the decision about what they want to do
0: well i guess that leads on perfectly to my final question which is what is the most important recommendation that you'd like to give to people out there with osteoarthritis
1: keep active keep active and avoid being overweight as much as they possibly can but recognizing that that can be really hard for people so they need support to be able to achieve it that would be my my two my two you only said i could have one but i had two two things Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Gunn.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Lee.
0: Thank you for listening to the Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by the handle at Soma Grad Group or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.